Welcome to the ITAM Review Podcast, news, reviews and resources for ITAM, SAM and software licensing professionals. So we are recording, AJ, and that's a great start to the podcast. Good. Telling, about, talking, telling people about how you're going to plait your beard. <laughs> well, apparently it's doable. It's a Viking thing, so um, yeah, we should uh, see. Do you, and, and, and didn't some of the worries in Asterix also plait there? Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. yeah. You, so. you could try doing what Blackbeard allegedly used to do, AJ, which was put lit matches in his beard to scare his enemies every time. Yeah. He yeah. Well, yeah. For for, uh, for our UK listeners, of course, um, Guy Fawkes is coming up. So, um, yeah, some sparklers maybe. <laughs> That'll do. So, on that informal start, welcome to the ITAM Review podcast uh, for October 2019. Woo! Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm joined by AJ, who you've just heard from, Barry, Rory, and new guest Kylie. Hello, Kylie. Hello. How's it uh, going? Yeah, very good, thank you. I, I, we um, first connected in the very, very early days of the ITAM review when you ran a blog called Practical ITAM, if you remember. Yes, that's right. I tried to find it this morning, actually. I don't think it's live anymore. And you very kindly let me liberate your Practical ITAM phrase for the ITAM review certification, so thank you for that. Um, uh, and I, I was looking back in the archives as well, and you first contributed a blog for us in 2000, early 2009, which is the first six months of the ITAM review, called How Much Ham Do You Need in Your Sandwich? Yep. Oh, cool. That's got to be one of our best um, headlines actually ever, so, uh, yeah. And you've been, a, you've been a long-term friend of the community ever since, so thank you for that. Uh, welcome, Kylie. Thank you. And ha- hello, everyone else. Good morning. Hello, Martin. Morning. So, so industry news this month. I wanted to cover. This is from a, a French uh, partner called LA, E L E E L A, and they have brought out this new innovation. Uh, I, I think it's an innovation anyway. I think it's a progression in the SAM services market called Sandbox.io. So that's Sandbox.io. And it's basically what managed service providers do, but they're doing it in a very open and prescriptive way. So you can basically order a reconciliation of a specific number of SQL servers, I think, or SQL specific number of Windows servers. And they'll give you a specific price for doing a reconciliation of that. They'll screen your data and show where it's bad and where it's inaccurate and give you a reconciliation for a fixed price. And um, a number of partners can do that for you around the world, but I haven't seen anyone really doing that on a website as a sort of turnkey thing. And I thought it was a really smart way of offering SAM services. I did have a quick look. I didn't realise you could just go on the website and uh, and request request the service. It's very agile, isn't it? It's yeah. very agile and sort of yeah. It's you know it's it's sort of let's do item as as a SaaS service. So, um, yeah, it's, it, I can see that the people would, might want to do that if you don't want to have that kind of long engagement with um, a managed service provider just to, um, you know, just you just want to have a look yourself very quickly, then I can see it might work quite well. I've got to be honest, I, I haven't had a chance to look at it in detail. And I think my, as a, as a licensed consultant, the thing that I'd be interested in is actually understanding exactly what you get for your money as an end user. Um, I mean, particularly with SQL Server, because there are so many potential variables um, in play here and, you know, around dev and test environments and different licensing methodologies for SQL Server uh, and so on and so forth. So I'd I'd be really interested, actually, as an end user, understanding exactly what I would get for my investment in that service. Uh, I think it's a good opportunity for partners as well, because maybe you're a SAM partner, but you don't want to do some of the heavy lifting and you can outsource that to somebody for a fixed price. Definitely. Uh, just just by means of example, I've gone on the pricing page. Oh no, all this is public domain stuff. Is uh, 150 maximum number of hosts is 150 Windows servers for 699 euros, mm. or six SQL server, 25 SQL servers for, or maybe let's crank this up, 250 SQL servers for th- about 3,000 euros. Um, and what I liked about it as well is when you uploaded your spreadsheet of inventory or, or license records, it highlighted which bits it couldn't process and which bits were inaccurate and ho- actually highlighted it in the spreadsheet, which I thought was quite cool as well. 
Um, but anyway, I thought, I thought that was interesting bit of innovation and um, uh, LA, a nice bunch, a big, big sound partner out of Paris. And uh, yeah, if you like that, go and have a look at it, sandbox.io. Uh, next bit of industry news, shuffling of CEOs. So the CEO of ServiceNow has run off to Nike. See, see what I did there? Oh, very good. Mm. Hey, he just know. did it. Yeah, um, I was going to say that. Need to be quicker off the block. Sorry. <laughs> Cute running puns. Uh, the, the, the CEO of SAP stepped down in, it, I wouldn't say it was mysterious circumstances, but it was a bit odd because it was just, I think they'd just done a good quarter and he's a long-term CEO. And then lo and behold, he's popped up as the new CEO of ServiceNow. Um, which is arguably, ServiceNow is arguably the, the, the next SAP or Oracle of the future. Well, it's, it's all very quick. Um, so it's a question of sort of who went and when, because the whole Nike thing really is potentially um, associated with the, the ongoing scandal around um, Alberto Salazar. This is kind of combining my two passions of sort of ITAM and sports. So, you know, um, I'm, sure, I'm sure Nike's CEO hasn't left because of the Quest order they had last year. It's probably more to do with the fact that there's this, these allegations about Nike Oregon projects and, and so on and athletes and all sorts of things. And that's only been going on for six months or so. So, um, you know, it's all pretty quick, as you might expect from a sportswear um, uh, manufacturer. So it's, uh, you know, who went first? No, was it planned for the Nike CEO to go? Um, no, he's, I mean, he literally was a Nike. He's been there forever. So no succession planning doesn't take place in a month or so, does it? It's, it's, it's long-term, um, these sorts of things. So was he always intending to go? And then that's moved Bill and then, um, you know, uh, and then because no service now obviously would know that John Donohue was going, was, was, was going to be heading out as well. So, yeah, it's just when when was that decision made? When did the merry-go-round start? So Donna, Donna, Donahue is the outgoing service now CEO. Yes. He was on already on the Nike board. He yeah. was, and yeah. also he's only been at Service Now for two years, mm. which is which is a relatively short period of time. Although the period of time that CEOs tend to stay in post is getting shorter and shorter, but one sort of almost feels like ServiceNow needed somebody else at the helm and have, and have had a period of relative instability. Mm. So I thought it is a really interesting rotation, isn't it? Yeah. And I, it feels like SAP is the one that's been taken by surprise because they've now got two co-CEOs and that's something that really works. So, over the next year or two, you would expect to see one of those CEOs pushed out and the other one becoming the single CEO. That's generally what happens mm. when you have two CEOs in place. So I think it's the implications for SAP are interesting. They've been doing quite well recently, haven't they? Mm. Yeah. So they now need to juggle this awkward period of two co-CEOs who are both SAP long timers, but you know, that's potentially a bit of instability for them. Yeah. And then hopefully, I guess from ServiceNow's perspective, hopefully they'll have a bit of stability that they've been lacking over the last three or four years. Yeah, and I think it gives, you know, but maybe it's a sign that ServiceNow are kind of, you know, stepping up and, and, and going to become even more of an industry giant outside of where they started. Um, you, when you've got someone um, like Bill McDermott on board who's got all this experience, it, you know, you, you would expect there to be some sort of maybe some growing up um, you know, they're, they're obviously a, they're a mature organization, but there's that kind of step up to being IBM Oracle um, SAP level. But do you know what? This is what this is what's really interesting because I think I think this is driven by ServiceNow because ServiceNow have given their new CEO a specific task of bringing revenue up from its current point to some astronomical, I can't find the figures, mm. uh, but you know, some really, really high figure that is a massive leap for them. But um, their new CEO at SAP, so, so uh, Bill McDermott, he's got form. So from 2010, when he took over as CEO of SAP to now, S, um, SAP's improvement has been astronomical. So he's, mm. he's been the driving force behind moving from something like Again, I need to find the figures online. I should have them at my fingertips, shouldn't I? 39 
whatever turnover to 143 whatever turnover so you know there's a definite sense that he's there at service now to grow service now yeah mm -hmm. yeah I, I i heard or i read online from i think it was a response from someone saying that service now are going out and looking at all their legacy and grandfather contracts and talking about new metrics already and so on so um obviously you know that's kind of that's a that's a, a standard sap tactic as well and also salesforce are, are going through busy trying to leverage people out of uh of older contracts and and, and getting to rebuy and so on just to um uh, you know that's that's the best way of, of driving revenue for them um outside just normal growth other industry news um office 365 and people able to buy without well, the, the, i think the gist of this is that they're able to buy without the using their it department right so sort of self-service purchase announcement anyone care to i think this was you that brought this up wasn't it kylie yeah it was so, micro, so microsoft has announced that for a small number of um analytical office 365 applications like power bi and power apps and things like that they're going to allow people to purchase directly on a credit card rather than having to go through uh central procurement so, that, so they'll basically be able to go into office 365 say i want to access power apps uh, here's my credit card and pay for it that way so i think that's it's a it's a really interesting uh piece of you know it's a really interesting change i think it's only been announced but Microsoft sounds like they, they want to force that through to all of their customers and want to try and encourage adoption of these quite expensive applications. Mm. So I think, you know, there's, there's a load of different considerations for software asset managers to think about with that. And it's, do you know what? I was also thinking it's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, if you work in a very agile organization, maybe you would be happy for your developers and, people who need to just get on with stuff well, especially if that information was rolled up to a central view so they could see what's going exactly. on exactly yeah 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 i think it all depends on the organization's risk appetite as well isn't it i mean there's, there's going to be some organizations like um it development um organizations that as Kylie says they're probably going to be quite happy for their their devs and their devops guys to actually just crack on and and do what they need to do to deliver a great customer experience um, but that, like, you know, alternatively, there's going to be some organizations, I think, that are maybe a little bit wary of this uh, announcement by Microsoft, particularly where they've already got shadow IT issues anyway, mm. um, where they're maybe not going to be able to capture this. Large enterprises in particular might might be a little bit wary of this. I think they'll, they'll obviously, there's going to need to be some business process re-engineering and SAM re-engineering to actually uh, capture the relevant data, I think, as well. Sorry, help me out here. Does that mean then that the, the actual purchase portal is is in the 365 suite itself? So yeah. if you want to buy, oh, wow, okay. So that's you whip funny. out your own credit card and you buy it on your own credit card or your corporate credit card. Yeah. Again, you know, okay, that, I mean, that's going to send shivers up a lot of software asset managers' spines. But at the same time, if it's just a license for that individual, then that and that say that individual then leaves the financial risk isn't huge because either that individual keeps paying on their own credit card or the corporate credit card gets cancelled and then they lose access but they've left the organization so it's not that's not such a big risk i think a bigger risk might come if they're creating um you know creating analysis and stuff that needs to be viewed by other parts of the organization if that disappears yeah. because that subscription has been cancelled because the person has left then that might cause operational issues mm -hmm. so again i mean it always comes down to how things are managed and it certainly raises uh, you know so, some interesting questions about how do we adapt management to deal with this or if we don't want to how do we clamp down on it um but i you know i thought it was an interesting uh approach you know it's certainly my, also for Microsoft, which is traditionally such a, a corporate-focused um, vendor, aren't they? You know, they don't do much consumer stuff, and this is a very consumer approach, isn't it? it very, um, very much so. Um, and you know, partners as well will obviously take a small hit from this. Um, and there does seem to be this kind of ongoing tension between Microsoft and and, and, and their channel partners around. Uh, who gets to deal with a customer? Um, I know 
I recall Rich writing something earlier this year around some some big changes they were making that then got rolled back. Um, so it, it is part of them becoming more 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 consumer focused. Um, I I think the big challenge, like I say, that no, the SAM risk is probably small, but the actual operational risk is pretty big because if you end if you I, I've got personal experience of of seeing people uh, line of business apps being developed by departments. They say written in access, for example. Um, deployed via access runtime, you don't have the source code, the person leaves, it's not supported, and suddenly you've got, uh, uh, certainly in, in, in the example I saw, we, we had millions of pounds of revenue being generated by an app that was completely unsupportable, mm. um, written in probably Access 97 or something, you know, so, <laughs> so, so, so that's, yep. that, that's the challenge. It's, it's having, and, and Microsoft say, you know, that there's going to be no way of restricting this via policy in, 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 your, in your admin client um, they say you must get your, you know, your your internal policies and procedures in place to to ensure that you know it's it, you know people if people do this then then they're doing it with a blessing or or, or, or not of the organisation. So there's going to be no hard switch to prevent this from happening. Um, and there's, there's a lot more detail actually on the forum. Um, the email that went out to all the um, Office 365 admins is there, and uh, there's this FAQ and a whole bunch of things around. So, so, so one of the things they're going to offer is the ability to roll these up into your EA or MPSA or whatever you've got um, no, at, at renewal time. So you can take them off a corporate credit card and put them into put them into your. Ah, right. Billing. So, um, yeah, you know, they are thinking about it in some ways, but very, it's very clear that they, they don't want to give companies the ability to prevent this from being done. So, mm. yeah. And and is this just the beginning? Where where else are they well, going to roll are. this out? Uh, you, you would imagine that um, off the top of my head, I'd imagine maybe Dynamics CRM would be, or, or the whole sort of um, uh, Dynamics um, platform like Connects, because this is for, so, so it starts in mid-November uh, for Power BI, and then early December it's Power Apps and Flow. That, that's all that's included, included at the moment. 2019 seems to be the year of software dinosaurs getting in bed with each other and making friends. <laughs> yep. At last. So we, we have uh, SAP this month in partnership with Microsoft. Uh, I think, what, what, what was it last? It was it Oracle and Microsoft uh, and Oracle and somebody else, wasn't it? Uh, Oracle and VMware. VMware, yeah. VMware yeah. thank you. Oracle and VMware as well, yeah. So SAP partnership with Microsoft. Uh, it makes sense. It's exactly the same as the... Um, MS and uh, Oracle partnership as well. It's a way for uh, SAP customers to migrate their um, on-prem stuff to the cloud. And I guess they're seeing Microsoft as being a better way of doing that than, um, than, than you know, uh, do, do SAP have their own cloud in the same way that you've got Oracle cloud? I, I'm not that familiar. Yes, they do. Yeah. They do. Yeah. It's only, I, I, I it's yeah, well, we, SAP for HANA is, is their database stuff, but they, they do do um, a lot of stuff in the cloud around um, business processes, ERP, mm. integration analytics, um, data and storage, all sorts of stuff, DevOps. Yeah. Um, I, I actually think this is quite a coup for, for Microsoft because, mm. I mean, it, it's, it's interesting as well, and I think it, it almost shows a, a pivot in um, how they're going to do business from SAP because obviously historically, as, as AJ was saying, they've always been very much on-premise, SAP for HANA, ERP systems, da 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 da, and then they've got their own cloud platform as a service, um, and they've always tried to nudge their, their their customers in the past into the cloud if they wanted to go to cloud, so into their own SAP cloud. So I, I'm intrigued that they're now actually saying, okay, that's fine. If you want to keep with your on-premise stuff, you can now park it onto Microsoft Azure and just effectively do a lift and shift. Uh, and I think that's, that's actually a real change in philosophy for SAP. And I, and I kind of wonder as well, this was announced at the same time as the as the CEO change as well, because it was actually um, Jennifer Morgan, who's now the CEO at SAP, who made this announcement. You know, so is, is it a change of direction linked to the changes in CEO or, or is that entirely separate? I don't know, but it's it, it's an interesting announcement nonetheless. I think it would be his last hurrah, to be honest. Yeah, potentially, potentially. Um, but I, I wonder to what extent the legacy dinosaurs like Oracle and SAP are now being forced to admit that they just can't, cannot compete with the big cloud vendors, you know, Azure, AWS and Google, because they're, they're just so efficient. And so SAP 
is gently throwing in the towel and Oracle is still fighting on. But actually at some point, you know, the economies of scale that are achieved by those big platforms are just going to have to win out and the network effects as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it makes a lot of sense. Them actually admitting even tacitly that they've maybe got their strategy wrong in the past and they need to swivel to actually, um, you know, sort of try and pick up and keep the, the customers. They want, particularly now that there's, you know, switching to Oracle for a moment, there's work going on in the background around how Oracle have used cloud to bribe customers or audit threats to bribe customers into going into cloud. You know, so obviously that that's going to cause them some problems anyway. So partnering up with a, a public cloud provider. Um, and, and as far as this partnership with SAP goes for Microsoft, I think, I think it's good news for them because they're starting to now mop up these partnerships with with the uh, the on-premise dinosaurs, as, as we're calling them. Mm. Because um, AWS are still far and away the biggest player in the public cloud market. So if Microsoft can actually keep these partnerships going um, and Oracle and SAP customers can actually move to Microsoft Azure, that can only be good news for Microsoft. Yeah, it's it's very much very much an enterprise play. It's it's much like um, you know, um, Microsoft are the biggest single vendor in the SaaS market now um, because of Office 365. So. Um, they might have started late, but they've still got up really rapidly because they've got all those enterprise customers who are much more comfortable dealing with Microsoft and an existing relationship than they would be with going off to AWS. And, and AWS is very much notable by its absence in all of these recent announcements. It's almost like old Silicon Valley coming together and, um, and, and sort <laughs> of taking up on the interloper. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, you know, it, it does feel that way in a way. Um, uh, yeah, no, I completely agree with that. I completely agree with that. I bet there's a similar partnership for SAP and Google, uh, uh, for AWS, sorry. Mm, it's just not been trumpeted and announced in the same way. Um, I'll, I'll be interested because I mean, one, of, one of the things you've got bearing in mind, so the original um, VMware on public cloud platform was supposed to have been Microsoft until that all, all went pear-shaped and instead, almost out of an act of spite, VMware went with AWS first and then and then... Microsoft are now hanging on to their coattails with Azure. So it, it makes you wonder almost if this is kind of Microsoft trying to get their own back a bit against AWS um, yeah. by sucking up all of the uh, all of the rest of the, the big players that they can partner with. Moving on. Barry, you've blogged recently about the importance of tech know-how in the ITAM industry, which is one thing. It'd be good to get people's views on that. And, sem and secondly, you've also launched this new YouTube channel for tech tips. Um, it reminded me actually, I thought your, your video is very good and we'll share it in the show notes. I, I thought it's very good. And I, I, it reminded me of the, um, Open University videos. Do you remember those? The guys with the, the guys with the kipper ties. <laughs> so this is are a you, are you saying yeah. I should change the style to, to, to be a bit more commensurate with that? I can, I can dig out some of my dad's old ties and do that. I but I, I thought, they were, I thought it was very good. And please, I mean, we, for one, as the ITAM review, would love to publish those. They're, they're really useful for people that are new to the ITAM industry because you might have real good ITAM expertise, but you might have come from a you know uh, finance, procurement, um, business analysis background. You might come from any background. You might have just started in the industry and you wouldn't necessarily know a, a core from a processor or from a cow. And I think what you're doing is really, really good. So please keep it up. Thank you. I mean, obviously, the, the most important question I think we need to resolve on the podcast first, did we work out if know-how is one word or needs a hyphen? It's got to be hyphened. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. I, I should correct the blog then. I mean, this is a drum that I've been banging for quite some time now. Um, and, I, and, also, and obviously, you know, it's, it's interesting because we had a discussion not that long ago about, um, you know, standard job roles and job titles within the ITAM industry, such as there are in other industries like accountancy, for example. Um, and obviously there are lots of different roles within IT asset management. You know, you have um, process engineers, you have strategic consultants, you have licensed consultants. You know, so there's lots of different career tracks you can follow in, in the ITAM industry. And, and some of those career tracks, you're not going to need to be as, as interested in technology as you are in others. But I mean, so my, my, my thing is actually, if you're involved in any form of software license management, you know, knowledge of, of data center technology and cloud technology, is, is I think is actually quite critical to your understanding of software licensing. Um, and I mean, I, I've spoken uh, around the world at, at ITAM review conferences with you guys, Martin, which, which I've really enjoyed. 
and one of the recurring themes is whenever I get onto a, a, a technical uh, subject or a licensing subject, and there was actually a great example from the US conference earlier this year where, where somebody um, actually said, like, you know, first off, can you explain the difference between a virtual core and, and, a, and a physical CPU core? And I, and I do think because of the way people come into the industry, um, whether it's by design or because they just get pushed into, into a role, um, I mean, me personally, I, I got into software asset management because I wanted a job that allowed me to work from home. <laughs> so, you know, we all, we all have our stories. But um, I think it's actually really important that so many people come into the industry without necessarily having a technical background or technical knowledge. And that immediately, if they're working with software licensing, sets them at a disadvantage. Yeah. And, and I, that's, that's... I think it's not to say that everyone has to be technical. It's, it, no, no, I quite agree. You have, yeah. you have to have conversational tech knowledge, don't you? Especially if you're working with stakeholders who are going to say, you know, the reason that server has changed in your inventory is because we've moved it over to a cluster because you know and, and then they go on this technical rant and you need to understand the the principles of that don't you absolutely i mean kylie shared a, a really interesting post on linkedin i think yesterday or today about um itam being involved with the change board um and this is one of those sorts of things because obviously if you're going into a change board and you've got um so and so in in the server management team wants to add a processor to a server you know, obviously from an ITAM perspective, you need to understand the license and impact of that. And if you can't um, speak comfortably about the technology involved in that, that that's going to give you a real disadvantage in, in that conversation. You know, so oh, yeah, I, I certainly wouldn't advocate for people to go and try and get themselves the level of technical knowledge that say, for example, an enterprise architect might have. But if you can sit down in a meeting room and converse reasonably comfortably around sort of core technical concepts like, you know, processors and virtualization and, partitions then that's actually a, a good thing so please go and check out uh, barry's video and barry your challenge should you choose to accept it is to feature a video with a kipper tie and flares that'd be your and a, and a flowery shirt <laughs> and, and black and I'll, white I'll see what i can do i'll see what i can do and, and obviously if anyone uh, i will say as well if anyone actually has any um suggestions for particular topics that they'd like me to cover then please um feel free to reach out yeah, uh, either come to us at the ITAM View, support at itsmanagement.net and we'll forward it on to Barry. Or if you find Barry on LinkedIn, Barry Pilling on LinkedIn, P-I-L-L-I-N-G. And uh, you can stalk him on there. Yeah. A little bit, a bit of uh, something I stumbled upon this month. I thought it was interesting, um, given that we're in October and maybe some of the listeners are planning their Christmas parties there's, a, there's uh, what they're called escape rooms are very much in vogue at the moment. So you go in, you know, with friends or colleagues or whatever, and you have to complete some challenges and escape a room, which I've, I've only done one of them, but I, I thought they're quite fun. This is a twist on that. So it's called a rage room. There's a company in Birmingham offering a rage room. And basically you can vent and smash uh, things up. What's the description? Bear me a second. You can participate in the destruction of a variety of household and office items, up to five people. So your whole item team can go along for just £45. And they provide the baseball bats and maces and all the rest of it. And you can smash up and vent uh, and smash up uh, bits and pieces. So I thought this is a brilliant idea. And, and, you, and it's got Bluetooth speakers, so you can rage out to your own playlist as well. So a bit of um, Rage Against Machine or something. <laughs> I particularly enjoyed the fact that you could smash up a photocopier if you have just been suffering through a print services contract negotiation or something. That, that would be an ideal Christmas. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, for an upgrade for £90, it's got, I've got a picture of one of these photocopiers, one of these office ones. It's like waist height. I'm sure everyone's seen them massive. It looks like a fridge. And for £90, you and your team can go and smash this up as part of a Christmas party. I think that's a brilliant idea. Just make sure you do your due diligence and, yeah, and that they're actually getting rid of all, all of the smashed up bits yeah. according to the Wii directives. Take, take the drives <laughs> out the photocopier. Imagine um, the reputational risk if you got it wrong. <laughs> I suspect they have, might have more of a challenge doing this in, uh, in the United States, what we saw Baines Oxley. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so sadly, you can't bring your own things to smash. You have to smash up their things. So if you have some troublesome Toshiba laptops, you can't take them along and smash them up, unfortunately. But... Anyway, one for the Christmas party. A couple of things from the ITAM review before we move on. Um, the Excellence Awards are back for 2020. So we've shifted the timing of the Excellence Awards. We'd normally be holding the um, 
awards dinner in November next month, uh, but we're moving it to March. So uh, the nominations are open and they'll be open until uh, end of January. The categories for 2020 are ITAM Professional of the Year, ITAM Implementation Team or Project of the Year, uh, Technology or Service Innovation we're looking for, Partner of the Year, ITAM Specialist, Licensing Specialist or Consultant of the Year, a rising star, which is a brand new award. So if you've been in the industry for less than three years and you're doing great stuff, we want to hear from you. And finally, the Lifetime Achievement Award. So if you're listening to this um, podcast and you want to either nominate yourself or you want to put a colleague forward, please check out the link in the show notes and, uh, and put, your, put your votes forward. The last bit of industry news from me is um, we've done research over the last year that says ITAM departments are increasingly reporting, rather than perhaps service management or finance or procurement as they might have done in the past, they're reporting directly into the board, into the C-suite. And we've got, I think we did the research at the end of 2018 that said 40% 40 of ITAM functions globally reporting directly into the board. They're facing increasing scrutiny and increasing exposure at board level. And that's because of a number of things, I believe. One is because uh, IT has become more significant over the last five to ten years, so it's no longer just a, a function in the corner. It's you know ubiquitous across the entire business. And the other reason I think that the ITAM is getting more um, exposure is because uh, the buyers of IT are no longer just the, in the IT department. If you look at, uh, I think the second biggest spend of software, for example, is typically marketing. So the CMO would be a big spender of on software. And the ITAM team can can help that department. So I think because of these two factors, you've got ITAM teams with increasing exposure and increasing seniority and increasing teams. And uh, one of the ways of validating the quality of the work for those teams so that you can prove to the board that you're doing a great job is uh, using an ISO standard. Now, the ISO certification doesn't exist at the moment. So if you wanted to, and I don't mean on a personal level for personal certification, I mean from a business point of view. If you wanted to certify that your business was doing great ITAM at an ISO level, there's no formal certification process in place. Um, so what we're looking to do is actually create that, create a certification process for, for organisations to certify against the standard. And there's two reasons why people might want to do that. There's internal validation to, to validate what you're doing the quality of work to internal teams maybe to hit uh, other industry regulation or other standards and there's external validation so you can go back to your supply chains or your um, publishers or your suppliers or even your customers to say we treat the, the, the management of assets really seriously and we've reached the ISO uh, standard. And this is a way of proving to people internally, externally, that you're actually doing ITAM at a very good level rather than just beating your chest and doing it on bravado. Because, for example, a lot of negotiations with software publishers might be done on bravado about how strong your ITAM team is rather than actual results or proof using an independent standard. If you want to get certified, that doesn't exist. So we're looking to create that certification program. We're going to do that via new not-for-profit that will have two purposes. One, that not-for-profit will run a certification program for the ISO standard. And secondly, it will evangelize about the ITAM ministry. So we're looking to evangelize so that more companies do ITAM as, 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 a, as a whole. So we want ITAM as a function to be as ubiquitous as accounting or finance so that everyone does it. And we also want to bring more blood into the industry. So that's a new initiative that will be happening towards the end of 2019. If you want to get involved, please let me know. If you're an end user company that's interested in maybe looking at joining a pilot program for certification, uh, please let me know. Also, this new trade body will be led by end users. Uh, it will have a board of end user trustees. So if you want to get involved with that as well, please give me a shout. Martin at itemreview.com. So moving on from last month, uh, Elizabeth, a podcast listener, sent in an awesome long email with lots of questions. And we only, I think we only covered one bullet point last month. So I've got a couple of points here that I want to cover from Elizabeth's letter. Uh, she asks, what are the common misconceptions around ITAM? That it's all about adding stuff up. <laughs> Yeah, I think one of my one of the things that uh, always um, 
I, I find a bit irksome, to be fair, in, with a lot of the end user organisations I've worked with over the years, particularly in the project spaces that um, the SAM team or the ITAM team are seen by other stakeholders in the organisation as just being the team you go to to buy your licences. You know, and, and I think that's, that's yeah, it's almost like, yeah, that's what we want. So can you go and buy that for us, please? And, and that's, um, I think, a flagrant misunderstanding of what IT asset management is all about. And, and obviously that's a, that's a cultural thing, potentially. Um, I think that's an educational thing, you know, making sure uh, as an ITAM person that the communication and the message and the right message is getting out there across your organization as well. So that's, that's one of the biggest misunderstandings for me. Yeah, I, th I think a lot of organizations have historically seen software asset management and IT asset management teams as operational, whereas in reality, they need to be governance teams. Yeah. Absolutely. So they need to be operating more akin to an information security team does, yeah. assuring processes, making sure processes are working properly, making sure processes are achieving an org the organisation's goals, rather yeah. than getting a load of calls in their queue saying, yeah, that's fine, we'll go off and buy a Microsoft project licence or whatever, which is what far too many ITAM teams spend their time doing. Yeah, no, I absolutely yeah. agree with you there, Kylie, because I think it is all about a strategic governance practice, isn't it? Mm. You know, no, I couldn't agree more. So put put another way, for Elizabeth or anyone else that maybe is just starting out or is getting blocked by senior management or other stakeholders that don't understand it, how do you smash through those misconceptions and help communicate the value of ITAM? How would you how would you take it from answering a queue of tickets about licensing to being a strategic government practice? I think I think you start off with you start off with working with external stakeholders. So um, find a team with a problem. Um, we, we were discussing this on uh, on LinkedIn earlier this week. Um, uh, project management office. If you're very project led um, as an organisation, and projects have their own budgets and um, procure their own software, getting involved in the project management process is a really good way because projects are very high profile. Um, and if you get the SAM or the ITAM stuff done early enough in the project lifecycle, then you end up delivering really, really good benefits for. Uh, you know, ensuring projects are, projects are delivered on time and and to budget as well. So they're a good one to start with. Um, equally, um, I mean, uh, data center, if you're just starting out, data center is probably a bit complex because you may not have a tool, but um, getting in and talking to your server team about how they've got their data center structured might be, um, might be another way. But probably, I think, I think, I think project office is probably is, is a really obvious one. Um, if you don't have that, then getting involved with change management as well, as in IT change management, um, uh, is is another option. Um, it really gets because that sort of it really also addresses that um, sort of view of ITAM being a project, not not a, not a continuing process. So often it's kind of oh we 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 we're we're reacting to this because we've been audited and, and oh, we, we need to get our licensing sorted out and it's almost like there's an end in sight that you can do that you can say okay our licensing is now sorted out um but of course it isn't it's an ongoing process and and, and that's that's quite a quite a big misconception i think it's a reaction to to, to 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 an event and then you think it's all done i think you hit the nail on the head aj when you said find out who has problems that you can help solve because mm. if you become engaged with stakeholders who you can uh, uh, that you can make their lives easier you're going to raise your own prof profile you're going to raise the value of asset management and you're also then going to be able to start saying look i can do more of the really high value stuff if we start automating the ticketing process for instance yeah. so that so that the service desk can see whether or not we've got spare licenses they're not coming to me to tell them they can just see you know those sorts of automation processes are invaluable in actually uh getting you away from spending your day doing operation stuff freeing up your time so that you can then go and start adding value to a load of other stakeholders hmm. yeah uh, yeah that's that's certainly my experience from, from having done this from, from uh, sort of from the ground up was I was stuck in the weeds of just finding out where we stood for six months or so really before I could, I could see all these potential benefits that I could deliver but um, 
just even having the data quality to be able to go and talk authoritatively to people and say this this is this is what i think it looks like um you know people aren't used to dealing with confidence intervals as in well it might be this or it might be that they, they they want to know certainty and that takes a long time to build as an operational team um so yeah it's um it does get you out of those weeds and, and, and get into things that maybe aren't being data driven. The idea that if you've got a software contract, you're automatically license compliant. Mm. And that's, that to me is a common misconception that still, still bounces around. Very true. Yeah. Um, I've lost count of the amount of times I've been told by architects in meetings that we have a Microsoft enterprise agreement. So that means we have a site license. Yeah, site license. The site license phrase is one to be really scared of. I, yeah. I, I still hear that, and I'm still like, yeah, we, we've got a site license for Office 365. Sorry for, sorry, Microsoft Office. No, we haven't. No, we <laughs> yeah. yeah, we're moving to cloud, so therefore we don't need software asset management anymore. Yeah, <laughs> uh, uh, I, I, I actually do do remember one um, story, uh, and and it's also a mis misconception. I think that you can actually just tell. Uh, major vendors what to do when you're negotiating with them but I mean one client I was working with they were moving a load of Oracle stuff to a VMware driven clouds this is a few years ago um, and I was like oh hang on a minute that's not an Oracle approved cloud um, you're gonna have problems here da, 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 da. and I was told by an architect well you'll just have to tell Oracle that they can't come at us and quote their usual multi-core site metrics <laughs> yeah that works <laughs> yeah. Oh. yeah so there's another one for you Another couple. Um, do you have a SAM suite? Yes, we've got SCCM. Mm. <laughs> um, that's, that's an often a, a common misconception within ITAM. And finally, I think the idea that if you've got, say, for example, Microsoft terminology around licensing and, and architectures and IT estates weighed off, that, that it, there is a one-to-one -one relationship with, say, another software vendor. Um, they, they will define... Um, metrics and and development environments as an example completely different right so um you know do do lean on that sort of yeah. sme experience for on a per vendor basis rather than assuming that everybody um treats the dev environment in the same way as an example yeah and and, and as well talking about sam suites the idea that if you have a sam tool you don't need processes well, obviously, obviously. <laughs> I, know, I know that's one of your favourite drops. Well, you beat me to it, yeah. Uh, second question from Elizabeth is, what are the tips for small companies that don't have SAM? Should they inventory in a spreadsheet or invest in a tool? Is there a tipping point when a tool is needed, when assets, for example, when assets reach over 100? And uh, my experience of this from doing the ITAM review is that we... Um, it's not that people don't do ITAM below a thousand devices. It's just that they probably do it, but they also do 15 other jobs in the company. It's when you get above maybe a thousand, 2000 devices in, you get a dedicated person doing ITAM. Uh, but I've seen companies of a hundred devices doing ITAM. Any, any views on this? What's the, what's the tipping point? I don't think there is a specific tipping point. I think it, it, it's driven by a number of factors, I think, isn't it? Firstly, Again, what, what's the risk appetite of the organization you're, you're working for? You know, what, what are your potential uh, risk indicators? I mean, and obviously that's going to be driven by uh, the environments you use, the software vendors that you've, you've bought from, um, you know, any number of factors there. And the other thing as well, I mean, I, I would say the tipping point for me is when it becomes too manually intensive to actually do it. I mean, if you can in inventory in a spreadsheet and not have to worry about investing at all, then obviously that's the way to do it. But when you get to the point where you can't do that because it's taking up too much time and it's too manually intensive, then that's when you need to start reevaluating your options. Yeah, yeah. I think complexity is an important point. If, yeah. you, if you are a small organization and you just have Office 365 because everyone's just you know, office workers and you don't have any particular line of business applications. You don't have uh, you know, a large data center. Most of your data center is Microsoft oriented. You probably can manage it relatively well without a tool. But as you increase the number of vendors and as your environment becomes more complex, that's when you will need to start becoming a lot more uh, focused in how you manage your software. I think a lot of it boils down to risk, either risk as in, you know, security risk or, or financial risk in that 
how how much risk can you tolerate basically so the bigger you get the more unwieldy the bill gets and after a while that starts to hurt to the extent you think we really need to get our arms around this yeah. and i think i think uh, i think rich has said this rich gibbons has said this from from the iTime view before is the cloud sam in the cloud is more relevant to smaller companies because they're much more likely to have an unwieldy bill quicker um and therefore need to do sam and optimization quicker you know they might it might be more relevant to them than on-premise yeah but it won't necessarily be licensing either that'll be cost cloud cost management right you know a lot i mean most smaller companies most cloud native companies will be using pass rather than iaes and indeed their um licensing will be covered by the by the platform as a services right but my point is they're going to have a monthly bill yeah exactly it's cloud. every single month that yeah. they think how yeah. on earth do i make a dent in this yeah yeah um for small organizations and we're talking sort of up to 250 500 seats uh bsa verifirm have created a small to medium enterprise information portal so it's full of useful useful uh, stuff around cloud cybersecurity and software asset management specifically aimed at that really if to us small enterprise market so sort of up to probably about 500 seats so if anyone's interested in that or knows anyone who might be interested uh, that might be might be well worth taking a look at online so it's the smeinfoportal.org cool all these things are relative as well, aren't they? A hundred, a hundred machines is quite a big company in Helsinki. Yeah. <laughs> and once you start getting specialist line of business software and different people wanting to use different types of software, then it's going to be much more complicated than if you genuinely do have a load of people at their desks using Excel. So it's very much dependent on the industry you're in and the type of organisation you are. Absolutely. I, I think as well, I mean, as, to pick up what Kylie said, I mean, obviously, if you're a small organisation, you're likely to be using more cloud-related software. I mean, you look at the, the, the plethora of, um, you know, SaaS applications that are target, targeted, sorry, specifically at, at small businesses and, free, and the freelance industry these days. I mean, like uh, Monday.com, for example, or Slack, you know, there's, there's so many. And obviously, those are going to be much easier to manage for a small for a small business as well. All you're going to do is worry about what your will is and actually how you're using that particular product, and if you're using it to best effect for its cost. Yeah, I I, I would add as well. Um, a SAM tool is never going to isn't going isn't isn't going to get you SAM, so you know it, it won't make you compliant. And and there are plenty of tools out there that you can use um, that are existing that are either free already in your environment. Um, they can get you a long way there um, as a smaller organization if you just want to get an idea of where you stand um, you can do this um, with existing tools things like um, SCCM um, isn't a SAM tool but, but but you can get a lot of information out of it um, Active Directory um, if you're using VMware VMware's portals uh, cloud portals all sorts of things we've just done uh, literally yesterday a, a webinar on this um, so have a look on our, our past events site and um, there's a lot of detail on there about um, how you can do some of this with, sort of without a tool initially um, and you can really use that to build justification for saying look we're doing this but it's taking us two weeks a month to to manage all this data um, you can use that to really justify investment in, investment in, 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 a, in a dedicated tool and I would argue, AJ, that if you did that process, you'd be in a lot stronger position to know what your requirements are for a tool as well. Absolutely. Yeah, you, you, you'll know where your blind spots are. Um, what, you, well, for a start, you actually know what, what size your environment is and what's in it. Um, you, you can get enough of that information out of existing tools to, to, to know roughly where you stand. Um, and yeah. if, you, if you listen to our previous podcast, I think it was... Uh, last month uh, with excite consulting we talked about the biggest misconception people have around tools and that is that they underestimate the amount of work involved and they think that and they probably sold and I don't, i'm not blaming the tool manufacturers here because it's it's, a, it's the buyer as well but there's a misconception that i'm buying an appliance and i just stick it on my network and i'm compliant whereas the reality is a sound tool is a platform and it needs to be worked every day like an accountancy system 
uh, to get the result you need. Absolutely. But there's a lot of um, really good free tools out there as well. You know, for if you just want from discovering things like that, so OCS inventory. And I, I don't know if anyone's ever come across, um, I think it's Snipe IT. Um, if you're a really small business and your primary concern is your desktop environment, Snipe IT is really yep. good free tool. You've got a list of these somewhere, haven't you, AJ? Of yeah, yeah, yeah there, there, there's a market guide um, published last year, I think this time last year, on free inventory tools. Um, have a look and, and search for that. And yeah, Snipe IT is in there, OCS. Um, Land Sweeper is permanently free for up to 100 devices, um, which is a very, very good inventory and discovery tool. It isn't a SAM tool, but it will get you the, the inventory and discovery and consumption side of things, um, including cloud stuff, um, Azure, AWS, and um, Office 365. So, but with, um, with, with that free inventory, you can say um, you can identify a high value application and then find mm -hmm. out who where that is and just go and collar that person and say, are you actually using it and do all that SAM work manually? Mm. And you can, you can build up your saving and justification pretty quickly just doing that, can't you? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a great way to get started and really, really build your business case for investment in um, a, a dedicated tool. Uh, yeah. Kylie, as part, Kylie, as part of your initiation, you need to sing job of the week. <laughs> <laughs> On my own. Don't yes. you normally do it as a group? Yeah, we can join you if you and you need to start ready one two three job, job of, of the week. week oh dear stick to <laughs> sam kylie stick to sam excuse me i'm a chorister <laughs> <laughs> would you like me to sing it operatically yes job of the week. i haven't i haven't sung for a while i have to Rikey. well <laughs> we're not worthy <laughs> <laughs> I think Martin's going to be edit happy this afternoon. Job of the week, of job of the week. We can do it, we can do it, we can do the job of the week. This is, this is taking a whole different tangent. We've just turned, in, turned into, into a Stephen Sondheim musical, which is awesome. <laughs> I could keep going. <laughs> Please don't. Please don't. Uh, <laughs> Did I say that out loud? Um, <laughs> so job of the week is uh, actually from, the, from our very own BBC in the UK. And they are looking for a senior software asset manager. We're recording this podcast on Friday the 25th. And the closing date for this is the 30th. So you have to pull your finger out. Uh, but I think BBC is, is seen as a very prestigious organization to work for, I would have thought. And they're looking for a senior software asset manager. Anyone had a look at this one? What's interested me about this is um, I think part of this role is going to be around management of a service provided by um, a, a service integrator because I do know historically that a rather large French-based um, service integrator with a four-character name beginning <laughs> with A, it's Atos, um, <laughs> <laughs> provided or sort of used to provide uh, some services to the BBC. Um, I don't know if that's still the case. I've got to be honest. I can't. I can't speak from from any knowledge. But I know they certainly used to provide some services to the BBC. So, so I'm interested in this. Is this actually um, going to be managing um, a, a SAM practice within the BBC, where they're actually going to be responsible for everything, or is it going to be a case of governing uh, to make sure that the uh, the service provider is actually providing the right level of service? The thing that yeah. struck me is, it's, uh, as we've mentioned on previous podcasts, this one is a very ITIL-centric job role, isn't it? It's very much you're working within service information and support. It's got ITIL terminology all over it. Yeah. I think, I think Barry, to your question, um, I've, I've been on site there. It was eons ago, in fairness, uh, when, I was, when I was at Flexera, and it was that, that particular situation that you described. So if, if it is the BBC putting the advert out, I suspect you will be babysitting Atos, or yeah, sorry, uh, govern, governing bat, Atos to uh, to deliver Sam. Yeah. Which, to be fair, having been in that exact scenario, um, that's that's a whole set of challenges in itself. 
but not, hang on, this is, if we're talking about, uh, Sam and ITAM should be a governance role. This is exactly what we mean by being a governance role. You're not doing the doing, mm -hmm. you are making sure that everybody else is doing the doing in such a way that the BBC is receiving, is achieving the outcomes it needs to achieve with regards to the management of its software. So this is a fantastic role for a senior software asset manager who wants to get away from managing queues to actually be doing really high value meaty work. Yes, providing the, the bandwidth is in the contract because it could be that you start asking, as you go up a maturity curve, you could be asking for line items in, in the SAM discipline that aren't covered by the contract. Oh, absolutely. But that's an issue that everybody faces with external, um, you know, when, when you're working with service integrators, because service integrated contracts are not written with software asset management as an integral part of them. You know, welcome mm. to the real world. You've got, you just have to deal with those sorts of challenges. But you know what? Next time the contract's renewed, you, you have built up a sufficient level of, uh, you know, weight to be able to say, to, to, work with the people who are negotiating the new contract say I need X, Y, and Z, please. Or you say, we're not receiving X, Y, and Z from this contract. Can I please go out and, you know, get a, a specialist and service provider or whatever is required? You know, this is a really good, solid, meaty role. It's an exciting one. I'd be, yeah, I'd be I, very I think happy. I think if you are working with service integrators, it's all about managing that relationship in the Absolutely. right way. Absolutely. Um, because obviously, if you've got a good relationship with them and they're providing their service within the contract and you maintain that good relationship, you, you might have a little bit more wiggle room for, for getting uh, almost value-out activities that you might get if your relationship isn't quite as strong. Uh, you'll be pleased to know, you'll be pleased to know, Barry, that it doesn't require a degree. Yay! Maybe I should apply for it. Fantastic. If they're leaving it open to simple people like me, maybe I should apply. It is based in Salford, so you'd have to lose your bucolic life in uh, Cambridgeshire. No, where are you? Norfolk. Norfolk, yeah, not Cambridgeshire. <gasps> oh, sorry. Essex boy. Essex boy living in Norfolk. Yeah. So you'd, you'd have to swap your bucolic Norfolk lifestyle for... Mad for it, Manchester. For Manchester yeah. and Salford. Having spent a fair bit of time in central Manchester over the last couple of months, I, I really like central Manchester, I have to say. Manchester's a great city, and Salford's quite nice as well, the way they've redeveloped it. Yeah. But it, it's not a bucolic lifestyle. Yeah. I just think the locals might be surprised to hear it called Salford rather than Salford. Oh, yeah. right. <laughs> I'm Australian. I can get away with that. <laughs> I think for, for this week's jargon buster, we need to know what bucolic means. <laughs> <laughs> well, Barry's living it. So. What's bucolic? Are you talking to me? Barry's yes, the one you who's used it. it. <laughs> <laughs> you used the word, Kylie. Come on. Rural. Rural. Oh, bless Google. Full of cows. Mm. Bucolic. Full of cows. I, I can assure you my house is not full of cows. <laughs> <laughs> it's cats, isn't it, Barry? Oh, definitely cats. Yeah, just not <laughs> yeah. So uh, one of the bullet points in the opening of this job description for the BBC is that they're looking for... Somebody to write, govern, and maintain the processes for SACOM and SAM. So, for Jargon Buster. Like, Jargon Buster. <laughs> Jargon Buster! What does SACOM mean? S-A-C-M. Service Asset and Configuration Management. It's an ITIL term. In ITIL 2, ITIL version hold 2. Hold on, ITIL hold your horses, hold your horses. <laughs> Oh, we have to use cake. Okay, that's easy. So service asset and configuration management is where you try and layer carrot cake with cheesecake. It really doesn't work that well. What, your analogy doesn't or the cake doesn't? The cake, the cake doesn't. doesn't. The cake doesn't. <laughs> Not the analogy. The analogy is great. The cake doesn't work very well. Barry, she's trying to steal your throne here. No, she, she's welcome to. I think I've had plenty of cake-based opportunities over the last few months, so I'm more than happy to allow other people into the cakey goodness. Okay, can I can I actually explain now? Yep. Okay, service that. asset and configuration management. So what it is, in previous versions of ITIL, i.e. before the current brand new version 4, they ITIL saw 
asset management and configuration management as effectively the one function. So they did come back to this counting analogy uh, when they were putting them together, thinking, you know, we're, we're status accounting. So asset management is about status accounting of assets. Uh, configuration management takes that a step further. And what it does is it looks at the relationship between assets and how they relate back to the services that we're providing to our end users. But in reality, asset management, and particularly software asset management, is really quite different from configuration management. It, configuration management is actually really, really hard and it's an entire discipline in itself. And you can't do ITIL configuration management unless you have a pretty clear picture of what services you're offering to your business. So I, I could, can I say you, you did a, a workshop uh, this week or last week on um, ITIL4 and, and ITAM. Yeah. And I, I, I feel, I mean, I think the, the number of functions having their ITAM department as part of service management is decreasing over time. Mm. I don't think that's the ideal home. And it, it just seems a complete, when I was sat there with the, in this ITIL4 workshop, I just thought there's a real disconnect here because uh, it was just, it was like uh, they've embraced DevOps and they've embraced agile and tried to make ITIL a lot more business savvy and relevant to what the customer's doing. And, but ITAM is still sat there as a, like a poor relation in the corner as a, as a op optional module rather than being a thread that's woven right through the middle of it all. What, I would agree. What, do you, what do you think? I agree to a certain extent, but having said that, ITIL4 completely has rearranged how uh, how you envisage uh, envisage service management. So service management itself used to have a life cycle. It still it still does have a life cycle, mm -hmm. but now it's recognised much more that all these different disciplines are are threaded through everything else it, uh, through all the other disciplines in the way that ITAM needs to be. Uh, in the old version, that was it, they just paid lip service to that concept. I, I think in the new version, that's actually much more uh, played out in reality. Uh, the new version, by the way, does not have service asset and configuration management. They've separated them out into practices. International standard 19770s view of IT asset management as a management system, where you need to make sure that you do everything in the right way to produce the outcomes that you want is actually a much more realistic way of approaching. And asset management. The other thing that got me was in the opening, the the nice guy who's writing the ITIL for ITAM book said that an an asset is defined as something of financial value to the company, as though you know we manage thresholds of what we're going to manage in terms of scope, and we manage things above that, and that's fine. Uh, but if you look at it, sort of misses the point. So if you look at the big headlines over the last couple of years, so SAP indirect access, uh, Oracle's Java. Um, security breaches, major security breaches, because people haven't, aren't managing assets properly. None of, all of those are free items. All of those are free assets, basically. They're not based on the value of the actual asset, they're based on the risk. And it, it, I just feel it completely missed the point. I agree with you to a certain degree, but on the other hand, certainly the Java and the SAP court case, court cases, the reason people are jumping up and down about them is because of the financial impact. So, so I think actually in many ways, it's quite positive to say IT asset management is focused on understanding and managing the financial impact and leaving uh, the management of configuration items as they relate to the services you're providing in a separate bucket and as a separate discipline. Uh, I can understand why many people would feel that that financial aspect was quite limiting, but in a way, I also feel it's quite realistic. Right. The gentleman writing the book is Stefan Juretz, and we'll put a link to his LinkedIn profile. So I'm if you're... sure that's pronounced wrong because you only say the careful consonants at the end of a French word, and T yeah. is not a consonant in careful. It, it, because he's French, it would be, I would imagine it would be pronounced Stefan Juret. Yes. Uh, you've gone way over my conversational ordering a beer and pizza in French. <laughs> I, I do know he doesn't live in Salford, though. But this, Liz, Liz never lets me forget the one time I was in a restaurant and I ordered confit of duck. 
So, um, yeah, <laughs> that's her favourite. So anyway, Stefan uh, is looking for feedback on his draft. So anyone interested in ITIL 4 and how it interrelates with ITAM, please go and give your feedback. Uh, and I'm sure he'll be welcome to your, your, uh, your feedback. And back on SACAM, I think a question for me around this job description or the BBC job description we were discussing before is how much of it really is configuration management? Is this an asset management role or is it a configuration management role? Because the two are very different and have very different skills. And if you're, and if you're expected to properly manage both, then this is a, a particularly challenging role. Yeah, and very different motives for what they want to achieve and exactly. objectives. And exactly. And just a final point on the role as well. I just um, I noticed that it was in um, salary band D, so I managed to find out what that what that means. Um, that's between thirty five thousand pounds and sixty three thousand pounds. So obviously, they have really wide salary bands at the BBC. Huge band, isn't it? Yeah, but you know, it's not. Yeah, that doesn't strike me as a even in Salford. Uh, doesn't strike me as being a <laughs> sorry, Rich. You, you're not on, so I, I I can't do it how I normally do it with a Manchester swagger. Um, but yeah, it's, careful, um, careful. We get we get abused. We get told off for abusing the North. I know we do. So yeah, so yeah, th thirty-five to sixty-three k isn't 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 a huge salary for a for a senior. Um, no, and we we've done we've done research that says that people that do ITAM within service management get paid less because it's more of an administrative role rather than being a governance or strategic role. You get paid more if it's sat outside of service management, basically. We have evidence for that. As it should be, anyway. So if you'd like to join us for a podcast Christmas special on the 18th of December in London, please uh, reach out to support at itassetmanager.net and uh, you can come and meet the team and uh, join us for a Christmas get-together just before Christmas. That's the 18th of December in London for our Christmas podcast, Christmas podcast, special Christmas podcast. <laughs> I feel like Peter Piper needs to be picking some peppers somewhere. Yes, yes. With that, thank you, everyone. Thank you for the podcast and catch you next time. Thank you. Cheers, guys. All the best. Oh, <laughs>